Good morning and welcome to Start Your Week on a Tuesday for a change. I'm Andrew Harrison. It's a short week and though Parliament isn't sitting, there's going to be plenty going on and I've got Arthur Snell here to take us all through it. Hello, Arthur. How are you? Good, thanks, Andrew. How about you? Not bad, not bad. Did you enjoy your very last lockdown Easter? Because there definitely won't be any more. It was the last one. Well, there definitely won't be. Uh, it was beautiful weather, you know, spent a lot of time outside. So, yes, it, w- it was wonderful. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Now, COVID still obviously top of the list for what's going to be going on this week. We're going to expect a week of the papers going crazy about pubs opening on Monday and haircuts being possible on Monday. But there's an FT story headlined, Johnson set for clash with Tories after backing COVID passports. The question of COVID passports to enable you to go to the pub and get your haircut uh, is is out there. Over 70 MPs, including 40 Tories, have promised to oppose the certificates, and that would effectively wipe out the parliamentary majority if it were to come to a vote. What has the government got itself into here, Arthur? Well, they seem to have gone down a particular line, which it's easy to say COVID passport, you know, makes sense, give someone the ID so they can then go about their business. But actually, the more you think about it, the less it really makes sense, because after all, almost all adults of certain age are vaccinated anyway. And the way that the government can look after this data is in itself questionable. There are all kinds of sort of unanswered questions that go with it. And so what you've got is this fairly interesting situation where the generally COVID sceptic backbench of the Tory party are aligning with the more kind of libertarian bit of the Tory party. And suddenly the government doesn't seem to have the numbers anymore. If this is going to happen, then there needs to be something in place by Monday, really, doesn't it? If the country's going to be able to stick to the timetable, if the immovable pub reopening date of Monday is going to be stuck to it. And there doesn't seem to be anything at all out there yet. That's the point in a way, you know, that you can have the philosophical debate about uh, COVID passports and we've done vaccine passports. We've done that on the bunker and elsewhere. But Almost anybody who's pro would say, well, it needs to be extremely well run. You need to have very clear parameters on how the data is controlled, on, you know, who owns that data, on the fact that the data wouldn't then sort of leach into other systems. It's not obvious to me that you could do that in in, um, six days. So it's very hard to understand really what's what's going on here. Well, it's a good job, really, that the government has got an absolutely copper-bottom record on large data projects rolled out very, very quickly, taking in data from the entire populace. Well, you are right. And, and of course, they've also got a copper-bottomed record on not changing their minds in the last minute on some major uh, COVID-related policy issue. The government's now in a convoluted position of saying that banning the, its response is that banning the passports would be an un- unjustified intrusion into what business wants to choose. So this is like... Are the two sides of the Conservative Party trying to out civil liberties one another? You can't tell us we can't have um, vaccine passports because that would be an intrusion on our rights. This is very Byzantine, this. Yeah, I mean, the the debate has sort of become a kind of minor backwater of two bits of the Tory party. And I imagine that most people, of course, are just desperate to try to get something approaching normality. I think one thing, though, that we can't rule out is that if the government doesn't do it, Uh, A lot of businesses may ask to see evidence that someone's been vaccinated and whether that's a little bit of card that you got given when you had your jab or whatever. So, it, you know, there is the argument that even if you don't like it, it's better that the government runs it than it just becomes this sort of ramshackle thing that's, you know, run on a a kind of ad hoc basis by private businesses. Well, the irony, I suppose, is that people have shown 
very high levels of compliance to both mandated and sort of suggested uh, new norms, haven't they? Broadly speaking, people have observed social distancing. Whatever pictures you might see on Facebook about very full parks in the course of lockdown, generally speaking, people have observed this. So giving, giving people or giving individual pubs and restaurants the opportunity to almost make their own rules kind of you know, it, it, it seems like you that will be storing up trouble because what people want is clear guidelines, if not necessarily clear legislation. I quite agree. And, and I think that in a way, that sort of argument slightly supports the case for a national passport scheme. Because if you're saying, well, we don't want the individual pub or restaurant to have to make the decision, well, then who does make the decision? But then you get back to this point that Boris Johnson, as is quite normal, has not spoken at all clearly on this subject. So we don't really know what the government line is. You know, is this a good idea? Is it not a good idea? It's still unclear. Keir Starmer, more on him later, um, is reported in The Guardian today as saying he'd be likely to vote against vaccine passports if they were to come to a vote in Parliament. It's far from clear that they will come to a vote in Parliament. I mean, where does this leave Labour? I think from the start, Starmer's sort of, a bit like Boris Johnson on this, he, he's not made his views particularly clear. He sort of said, we don't think it's very British, but we're, we still want to see the details. Now, of course, you could say that's reasonable. You know, what is it he's supposed to have an opinion on on this stage? It's not mm. at all clear exactly what the programme is. But I think he's, yeah, he's been tacking slightly with the wind. And I think he's now seeing that it's it's looking very difficult for the government. So he's sort of hardening his opposition to it. One thing that does look pretty clear that will happen this week is that summer travel will be will be gone. There's going to be a traffic light system for holidays and business travel if they're allowed at all. And even countries on the green list are going to require, if no isolation, but they'll require tests before and after travel. We're promised an announcement this week. What, what are you expecting, Arthur? I think it's it may be that they try to announce something that leaves it open for them to sort of change the rules later um, so that they may just announce this traffic light system but not talk about who's who's in which colour yet. The government messaging has actually been fairly consistent. They've said you're not going to get a foreign holiday but there's been a lot of pushback clearly from the airlines and other bits of the, the travel industry and of course there are countries, notably countries in southern Europe that are very very dependent on tourism, Greece, Spain and so on, who are sort of ploughing ahead with their own plans for welcoming tourists over the summer. I feel that the announcement we hear this week won't be the end of the story at all. I'm sure lots of people may have made bookings that they can cancel or or are still keeping their options open, you know, and I I wouldn't be surprised if some people do end up travelling abroad this summer for, for a family holiday. It's strange, isn't it? There's the huge disjuncture between the papers, which have this kind of present this idea that the entire country is clamouring to get to a beach with a photograph of a massively packed beach as, as they always run, and what you what you tend to hear from your own friends and family, which is just, well, look, if the virus is is getting worse in Europe, why would you want to go? You know, the yeah. kind of disjuncture between the, the the picture of the country that the papers give you and what you actually hear from your own friends. Well, indeed. And also, I think certainly people I talk to are quite sort of sanguine about it. Lots of people I know have sort of made provisional bookings that they can cancel at at no cost to themselves. You know, we've all learned to live with this uncertainty. So I suppose it's important that the government has these sorts of um, systems that, you know, we can have some predictability. But ultimately, I, I don't feel it's something that everyone's on the edge of their seats waiting to know, because I think everybody accepts that we just don't know in April 
what the situation will be in August. One other part before we move on from COVID is that the government's announcing twice weekly DIY home testing kits for everybody as part of un- unlocking. This seems like, again, a very ambitious thing to try and roll out and be, you know, heavily dependent on compliance. Everybody who's ever had to do a, a home test complains about how painful it is sticking things up your nose and so on. Can you can you see it taking off, Arthur? I can only see it taking off. It then forms part of some wider uh, situation, for, for example, getting people back into offices. Now, that's where the government has been, particularly Boris Johnson, you know, has been quite controversially pushing the idea that working from home isn't real work. Now, of course, there'll be lots of people who hear that and, and sort of feel their blood pressure rise because they've been working bloody hard. There's the sort of hand of Rishi Sunak desperate to reopen the the coffee shops and the Pret-a-Manger outlets sits behind a lot of this stuff. So I just wonder, um, I'm definitely not trying to sort of speculate into conspiracy here, but I just wonder whether the home testing is part of a strategy that seeks to get the workforce out of homes and back into offices. One little bit more domestic politics before we we move on to the wider world. It's Starmer's first year anniversary as leader of the Labour Party. There'll be a whole load of talk about the year of Keir and probably about how little headway Labour has made in this very strange uh, period. Starmer's having a tough time in the polls and he's also having a tough time from his own party's left wing. Is How do you think he's going to mark this anniversary? Is he going to mark it? Because it looks like everything on his plate is firefighting. Yeah, well, if I was him, I wouldn't be seeking to sort of have a big celebration and, you know, the the most recent uh, thing that may be giving him sort of sleepless nights is the uh, polling out of Hartlepool, which, of course, is, had a Labour MP sitting who sadly died. There's a by-election coming up. It looks very possible that the Tories will take the seat. Now, you, one could easily say, well, this is just the kind of seat that swings Tory these days. So it's not a big indicator. But clearly, it, it's a very bad look if you're the leader of the opposition after a year in which tens of thousands of people have died in this country and you, and you can't win a by-election in the north of England, you know, it, it, that, that's not a good look. So I, th- I think, you know, Starmer's had a very rough ride. One of the sort of counterpoints that you could make to that is if we think back to David Cameron, who is the last leader of the opposition actually to win power in an election, uh, at this point in his opposition journey, he was still very much underwater in the polls, struggling around, you know, trying to define himself, giving speeches about hugging hoodies and going on dog sledding trips. And whatever what we think of Cameron now, you know, eventually he became electorally quite successful. So I think that Starmer has plenty of time to recover his situation, but I don't think he can look at the past year and feel particularly satisfied. Yeah, and the Hartlepool thing, I mean, political obsessives obsess over by-elections but they tend to be forgotten within a few days don't they and we're in this extraordinary period of the vaccine bounce which is affecting older voters who are feeling more optimistic and tend to be more likely to vote conservative yeah so it, it's a yeah it's a very tough backdrop and the other thing to remember hartlepool was the place that the head of of the um brexit party richard tice or the co-head hmm. uh, chose to run for parliament and he got quite a lot of votes so the fact that Labour clung on with a narrow majority last time was a vote that was split between Brexit Party and Tory Party. Yeah, and the, the replacement party, whatever it's called now, reform, whatever, is really tanked, hasn't it, in the polls? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not anywhere. So so basically, you could sort of add those two columns, and I'm not to be simplistic, and, and you've got a, yeah. a, a fairly obvious Tory majority there. But, but equally, uh, you know, 
you ought to, if you're leader of the opposition in a government that has plenty of, uh, you know, sort of incompetence demonstrated, you ought to be able to win a by-election. And I think, personally, I, I think Keir Starmer's an admirable person, but it, it, I don't think one can look at his year and say he's done a good job. Ukraine says Russia is moving thousands of military personnel to its borders and to the Crimean Peninsula, which Moscow annexed in 2014. The EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell and Boris Johnson have both promised unwavering support for Ukraine. Arthur, what, what's happening here? Is it Are we likely to see some more Russian aggression against Ukraine? Well, what's happening definitely is that they are uh, the Russians are massing troops and material um, both in the bit of eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region, which of course the Russians have supported separatists there and in, in Crimea, which, which they occupied, as, as we all know, you know, after the Euro-Maidan events of 2014. Whether or not this means specifically that Russia is about to launch a major military operation is the billion-dollar question. I tend to the view that they're not going to be that provocative and what they're, they're doing this to get the reaction that they're getting that, of course, it causes a lot of nervousness. It empowers the pro-Russian forces within Ukraine, which is a very, you know, finely balanced, sort of delicate, um, fragile political uh, situation. And of course, it forces uh, outsiders such as the EU, such as the UK, such as the US, to refocus on Ukraine um, at a time when, of course, there are plenty of other things that they want to be looking at. So I, th- I think that is probably what's happening. But you can't rule out, of course, uh, Putin trying something uh, more ambitious, more aggressive, again, maybe using irregular forces. Remember those little green men, no one quite knew who they were until you woke up and they'd taken the whole of Crimea. So, you know, Russia has a lot of capability, and they like to test just how far they can push the envelope without really heavy consequences coming back on them. And the backdrop here is that they know that given the very negative uh, relationship now between the US and China, on the sort of geopolitical scale, China isn't going to do anything to make lives difficult for them. And China will continue to buy Russia's oil and gas. So, So they've got that sort of reassurance as they do these provocative actions. The little green men thing is, is, is quite interesting because this time around, things are being spotted on TikTok. Troop and artillery movements on, uh, are being spotted by online researchers, online platforms, and one of them is TikTok, which seems, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen by accident. It seems an immensely modern thing if Russia wants to get the message out that things are happening and draw attention to itself. TikTok seems, you know. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. It's, it's not just a trivial site with people doing funny dances. One of the things that's interesting about this is the Russian state and particularly, you know, its intelligence agencies are very sophisticated in manipulating social media and so on. But it's also the case that ordinary Russian military are quite fond of posting things on social media. And if if you look at Bellingcat and and all the amazing investigations they've done, so many of which have focused on Ukraine, a, a huge amount of it has depended on Russian military, even supposedly relatively kind of secret special forces type uh, players posting stuff on social media. And, and um, you know, may they continue to do so so the rest of the world has an idea of what's going on. But then there's another way of looking at it, isn't it? Which is like we tend to look at this kind of thing and go, well, what are they preparing for? What is the thing that they're preparing for? And maybe this is the thing. Maybe 
you know, dribbling out information into into the uh, into social media and and the internet, maybe creating the impression that Russia can move with impunity and do whatever it likes. Maybe that's actually maybe the the, the message is the purpose that it's not actually about moving troops further troops into the Crimea or starting you know actual ground action against Ukraine. It's just to make that statement to the world that Russia can do what it's like what it likes. Russia is strong. The EU is weak. Yeah, I think that that's that could very well be the case because you know, as I said, that the they've almost achieved half of their objective already. That they've they've destabilized the sort of internal or further destabilized the internal politics of Ukraine. They've empowered the pro-Russian voices within Ukraine. They've they've caused an enormous amount of sort of global attention back on them, reminding the world that they're a powerful nation that can can make change, you know, in, in when they choose to do so. So as you say that, you know, the activity might be the, the message, not not some sort of future military operation. The conventional way of looking at this, though, of course, would be, are they putting Biden to his first test? This is the first kind of push from Moscow to the Biden administration. And don't forget that apparently Vladimir Putin took very badly uh, Biden's um, observation well, he he answered yes to the question. You know, is Vladimir Putin a killer? Yes, he is," said President Biden. Uh, and whilst most people might think that's a statement of the bleeding obvious, supposedly, <laughs> um, you know, the Russians were very upset by that, and they, you know, withdrew their ambassador for consultations, which doesn't sound like much, but in diplomatic speak, that's quite a big deal. So yes, you know, I think that they're trying to sort of test him out. But in a way, they Biden came in very obviously. He had to. One of the best ways he could show the difference between him and Trump would be by not being completely beholden to Russia. Um, and there's not too many votes for Russia over in, in the USA. So it, it seems to me that um, if Putin's trying to test Biden, it's very much in Biden's interest to stand firm here. So, so But then Putin likes to just keep pushing. And, and if you look overall, he could probably look at his you know 21 years in power in Russia and, and argue that his his strategy of sort of always pushing a bit further has so far paid off for him. So if you look at it from his perspective, maybe this is quite a sensible activity. A couple more foreign policy things before we wrap up. The arrest of Prince Hamza of Jordan over an alleged conspiracy to destabilise the country. Hamza had been a vocal critic of corruption and the authoritarian rule in Jordan. He sent this extraordinary video to the BBC say, uh, you know, attacking the incompetence of the state, saying nobody is able to speak or express opinion on anything without being bullied, arrested, harassed and threatened. Uh, he's now come out and pledged loyalty to the king. Is, is this over? Is this, or, or is, was, this the big, was this the beginning of something? I don't think it's over. The, a couple of things to note. So Jordan, of course, is is very much the sort of the friendly face in in that region, uh, and it's a you know a country with great natural beauty, and people in the old days used to go on holiday there and all that kind of thing. But it is a country that is ultimately ruled by an authoritarian hereditary monarchy, and in that sense, you know, not necessarily that much different to some of the other countries in the region. Prince Hamza was the original designated heir to the throne and his father, King Hussein, you know, intended to pass the throne to him. And then there was a sort of reshuffle of the deck and his older brother, Abdullah, became king. So there is a a degree to which one can look at Prince Hamza and, and see a sort of thwarted ambition. The other thing in the mix is that there's quite a lot of credible players, uh, sort of contacts and so on, saying that the Saudis are involved with this. So uh, some of the people who've been arrested, 
in connection with Prince Hamza's arrest are people who are known to be close to the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Now, he's somebody, of course, is notorious for intriguing, for, you know, trying to kind of interfere in all kinds of other countries uh, around Saudi Arabia. And of course, he's responsible for the kidnapping and murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi and all kinds of other uh, things, not, not, not to mention the war in Yemen. It's to some extent, I think what we're seeing in Jordan is perhaps evidence of the ripples of the kind of MBS era in Saudi Arabia, where a very, very active, intrusive, and and one might argue rather rash crown prince in Saudi Arabia, he's interfered in almost every country bordering Saudi Arabia now with with a range of different impacts. And we may be seeing a a bit of that playing out in Jordan. The underlying fact is that Jordan is a rather poor country, completely dependent on Western donors particularly the US, and is seen, as I say, as a beacon of sort of stability and, and safety in, in a pretty dodgy region. And it it always will have a slight sort of fragility to it. And I think this is good a good example of that. Or we could just say that it's another Prince Hazard making unauthorised videos and annoying the royal family. <laughs> Maybe he's got a Netflix contract, uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the works. It's a thought, isn't it? Yes. Um, finally, it's possible this week we might finally see Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu get his political comeuppance. He's on trial for bribery, fraud, breach of trust. And simultaneously, who'd have thought it, uh, the president of Israel is in talks uh, with members of the Knesset about whether Netanyahu will get to form another government or whether his political career will be over. Uh, he's the first serving Israeli leader to go on trial. And he's um, he is actually a divisive figure in Israel, isn't he? not that the, the idea that's uh, often promoted that Israel is this kind of unified state where everybody agrees is is not really true. He's very divisive. Uh, he's also extremely uh, successful as a politician, which doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, his pol- policies are good ones. But he, you know, he's he's the longest serving prime minister, and so on. Now, my understanding is that this trial uh, has begun. And of course, it will it will be an opportunity for very uh, lurid allegations against him to be ventilated publicly. But the trial is expected to drag on for months, possibly years. Now, in the past, when when one of his predecessors, Ehud Olmert, faced a similar sort of legal jeopardy, he did what might be considered the decent thing and, and stood down. But there's a bit of sort of Boris Johnson in Netanyahu. He's basically pretty shameless. He's not going to stand down. He plays a very divisive political game, but that works for him. Again, that might sound familiar to some of the UK listeners. And I think it's very probable that he will, he will tough it out, knowing that the trial is, is, uh, is set to run, run and run. He will try to form a government. He may call in another election. He, uh, Israel has gone through this very unstable period where they keep having elections, but they can never get a majority. Uh, so then, then they have to go back and do another one. And uh, he will continue to act with a measure of impunity. And I'm not saying that that means he'll never face justice, but I think it's going to be quite a while before we see it seriously impact his political fortunes. He is a past master of getting away with things, isn't he? I just yeah. love this aspect of the story where, um, you know, his his, his mate, the, who owns this telecoms company and also a, a news website called Walla, um, there was a code word for articles about the Netanyahu's, which was shish kebab, because they were made to order. 
Yes. It's like, we want the story the way we want it. And, and uh, Netanyahu was referred to as Kim, as in Kim Jong-un. I and know. his wife was referred to Ritzal, the, uh, Kim Jong-un's wife. It's brilliant, isn't it? And and you sort of think, yes, what does it say about you that your 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 nickname is is this sort of murderous dictator of a of a of a sort of fantasy kingdom? But anyway. Yes. Who knows? Well, I guess I mean as you say, it could run for years and years. So I suppose um see you in years and years and we'll see how that one rolls out. Yeah. But that is the end of Start Your Week for this short week. The uh, the panel show is gonna be tomorrow, Wednesday for a change because of the short week. So we'll see you then. Arthur, thanks for getting up early and explaining everything to us. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you on. Listeners, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you don't miss all of our daily editions and search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to support us in our important work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.